Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with me is our other co-host... I'm Drew Tan. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to 2021. We made it. We survived. And, Happy New uh, Year. Uh, Happy New Year, y'all. And uh, as a special treat, as a way to uh, close out all old things and to start out new, uh, start out with a clean slate into new things, what we're going to do today is we are going to finally cover our number one Marvel comic of all time. That's right, boys and girls. It's yep. been a long time coming. We've we've matured a lot since then. We've grown. We've aged. We've wisened. So, gotten older, fatter, closer to death. Yeah, that's probably more accurate. I'm certainly not wiser, but I'm definitely <laughs> fatter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's but been we, a long road are. to get to this point, hasn't it? <laughs> but here we are. We finally made it to to the end of this journey. And uh, for those of you who stuck out with us and who waited week after week to find out what the number one Marvel of all time, we thank you for putting up with us and uh, for, for joining us on our journey. Yeah, it's it's been really fun. And, and, and this is by no means the end of our podcast or anything, but it feels good to finally get to the end of the, the list because that was originally the first thing that we started uh, recording episodes about back when we kicked off our podcast back in what 2017 yeah so yeah, we've been doing this been a while years. and uh, we're t- today we finally gonna slay that dragon yep and then at some point we will get to the dc top 25 <laughs> we'll, we'll, hopefully we'll be a lot quicker about those <laughs> <laughs> We've reached our stride. We've learned about the uh, the limits of our abilities, and realistically speaking, hopefully speaking, we'll be able to do that list a lot quicker and a lot more efficiently. Yeah, I think we've learned how to be more organized, and we've gotten used to our pace. And I also think that the way that uh, we've scheduled things out is going to help too, so... Hopefully, you know, assuming that things go according to uh, how we roughly imagine them or expect them to go, then yeah, we, that's something that uh, is definitely doable in a much shorter time span than the three years it's taken us to complete <laughs> this list. <laughs> it took us three years to cover 25 comics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, speaking of which, it is time for us to do the drum roll so that we may announce what our number one Marvel comic of all time is. So for those of you listening, for those of you who want to know what the the wisest of the wises, the wizards have... Uh, wizards? Yeah, they are wise wizards. Okay. Okay. I, I, I've never heard that term before, but uh, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll add that uh, to my... I'm trade- I'm trademarking it as of this moment, so if okay. you know, guys, those of you that are listening, uh, be prepared to buy your Wizard shirts. <laughs> we should Get start a Wizard. magazine called Wizard Magazine. <laughs> Wizards, Wizards Magazine, and Wizards Merch. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, you know, uh, we we finally come up with what the number one is, so uh, we. I'm priming the pump, so, you know, I I want to keep you guys on the edge of your seat before I finally tell you. 
So the yeah, the, you know the funny thing is, is that there's a chance we might just title this episode with our pick, so it won't be a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that. Uh... Here's, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. <laughs> I think people who have been listening to us for a while, and if and if they know a decent amount about comics, I think they have a good idea what our pick will not be. It's not going to be a Chris Claremont Uncanny X-Men comic. It's not Dark Phoenix Saga. It's it's not Days of Future Past. It's certainly not God Loves, Man Kills. <laughs> That's right, boys and girls. It's X-Force number one by the Rob Liefeld. <laughs> <laughs> one of the greatest selling comics of all time. <laughs> In all no, I, I, yeah. In, in all seriousness, our number one all-time greatest Marvel comic ever is Fantastic Four by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. So right. this run is universally acknowledged as one of the most important comics of all time. Their run was incredibly long. It was a hundred and two consecutive issues. That's crazy, man. Like, yeah. nobody does that. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, granted, Bendis and Bagley did like 110 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. Something like 110. But but up, up until the two of them did it, I mean, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby pretty much set the record. They did 102 consecutive issues. So no, no fill-in artists, no fill-in writers. They also did six annuals in the span of those 102 issues. So it's a long run. It's a Fantastic Four epic, number man. one. Yeah, it was a, it's an epic run. Fantastic yeah. Four number one had a cover date of November 1961. I think it, I want to say it actually came out in August of 1961. Just to give you a sense of, of the time period we're talking about. And Fantastic Four number 102, the final issue of their run, came out, has a cover date of September 1970. So a good nine years or so of straight comics from the same primary creative team. Yeah, it's um, I mean the the other thing that's so crazy about it is, and this is the probably the only thing that you can only have in hindsight, but just for a comic that set established the foundation of so much of the Marvel universe for it to run so long too it's it's crazy when you think about it like that you know yeah uh, it's 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 like it's like just batting it, it, it i i don't even have an analogy for it but i want to say it's like uh i suck at sports but i want to say it's like you know, <laughs> like baseball for the first time and just you know hitting a home run in your first major league uh uh outing you know just just to be able to come up with something that's so spectacularly mm-hmm. uh, substantive and impactful to like, and and again, like a lot of this is in hindsight, but man, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's just incredible to think about. It, it's still a run that I think most people that that study comics and consider comics 
and just examine the importance of comics from whether it's a, an academic perspective or just an appreciation of the medium in general, like whether or not people even like superhero comics, I think even as long as they like comics in general, they, they acknowledge the importance of Fantastic Four. This is a, a monumental work in the history of comics. Yeah, I mean, it deserves its recognition. And, uh, you know, there are, there are other podcasts that me and you kind of rip on um, that spend their energy studying meticulously the works of Chris Claremont. But this <laughs> is the stuff, you know, this is the stuff that's worthy of, uh, of a master's class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, just to go back to our criteria, in case you guys have, uh, you know, it's drifted from your memory, but our four criteria was basic was basically the the craft of the work, the originality of the work, the impact of the work, as well as the work's ability to withstand the test of time. So that's those are the four things that our wizards and our pontificators have been, <laughs> our wizards <laughs> have been using. They, they use statistics and the black arts in order to determine <laughs> what comics yeah. made it to It's, it's a combination of, of uh, calculus and Ouija boards. Yeah, we killed so many virgins just to, just to, <laughs> just to make this happen. It's, 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 a, it's a crime. It's <laughs> <laughs> Note to any law enforcement personnel listening to this podcast, that was a joke. That was a joke. No crimes have been committed in the production of this podcast. <laughs> all all virgins are safe. I we we did not murder. There was zero virgins were harmed in the making of this podcast. But None if they were, had been harmed, they would have signed waivers. Yes. <laughs> no virgins <laughs> were sacrificed to bail on our behalf. <laughs> but how metal would that have been? <laughs> yeah. About as metal as Annihilus, the living death that walks. <laughs> Man, that that's a band title right there. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, Albert, let's uh, give a brief synopsis of Fantastic Four. What what do you want to say about Fantastic Four by Kirby and Lee? Um. Yeah the the briefest synopsis that I can give is uh, it's about a it's about a scientist by the name of Reed Richards who, along with a uh, young Sue Storm, who is, you know, his semi-love interest, her her younger brother, Johnny Storm, and his best friend, Benjamin J. Grimm, uh, they decide that they have to go and take this experimental test rocket into space before uh, the opportunity is lost on them. So... You know, they go into space to test out this rocket, but as a result of uh, a freak radiation storm uh, that occurs in the upper atmosphere, they're bombarded by cosmic rays, as they're called. And, you know, instead of getting cancer like most of us would have, they were given, <laughs> they were given fantastical powers um, uh, and they donned the name the Fantastic Four. Uh, Reed Richards becomes their leader, Mr. Fantastic, with the ability to stretch his body in all sorts of different directions, um, like rubber. Uh, the invisible girl, Susan Storm, is uh, able to 
render herself invisible to the human eye. Um, her brother, Johnny Storm, can, can essentially light himself up in flames and even uh, use those same flames, flames to give him the ability to fly. And Benjamin Grimm has essentially mutated into a large rock-like beast and mm -hmm. goes by the thing and together they are the fantastic four and they go on an epic they they have many epic science adventures facing all kinds of um phenomena and ne'er-do-well that would oppose them it's 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 very much a comic that harkens back to like the 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 great age of kind of the great age of sci-fi fiction you know mm -hmm. it, it comes out of the same time period as that so a lot of this is you know this is kind of in the era of the space race and you know for in terms of a little bit of backstory for those of you uh who are you know unaware of it or those of you who are too young for to be uh uh to to know about this stuff um, but, you know, basically when, during the period where the United States was facing off against communist Russia, uh, one of the global pissing contests that we had was the race to the moon, the race to conquer space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, there was a period of time where the communist or the, the Russians, uh, or the Soviet Union specifically was, uh, was ahead of that race because they had developed the first rockets that had put men, uh, living things into space, first a dog and then actual men into space. And this, there was a period of time in which we were behind and, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy during his era made that great speech about going to the moon and it inspired a nation to believe that Americans have this exceptionalism that, we have the ability and the imagination to go and conquer space and to be the first and that democracy will rule in space, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and it's that spirit that was put into not just comics, but into a lot of the fiction at the time. So it was during this time period where we were seeing a lot of, uh, you know, short stories or novels or comics that, included a lot of those uh bright-eyed optimism optimistic uh ideas about space and science and uh achievement essentially yeah how was that for yeah. a, a brief descriptor <laughs> that's a good summary of of the start of the fantastic four man that's a yeah i i, I couldn't have put it better myself so yeah. what do you say we uh, go ahead and tackle the criteria on our list and just, uh, you know, explore the reasons why this run has proven itself to be the greatest Marvel comic of all time? Absolutely. So the first thing that we always tackle on, on this, uh, during this countdown of the top 25 comics has always been the craft and... It's hard to talk about the craft here without talking about Jack Kirby. 
He is mm-hmm. uh, the man who drew these comics, and uh, like Drew mentioned, he drew 102 of them, uh, along with uh, Stanley on on the writing credits. But Jack Kirby's art, you know, uh, just again, this is a thing that, in hindsight, we can look back and truly appreciate just how much of a master this dude was, you know? Like, yeah. If you talk to anybody about comics, Jack Kirby, like he's 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 on every he's got to be on everybody's Mount Rushmore of comics. And you know if if you talk to someone and he isn't on that Mount Rushmore, he needs to be beaten upside his head with a shovel. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's always the best way to settle uh, disputes about opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Any, that's anytime how somebody got, that's how I got my degree, Drew. You got to find a shovel. <laughs> I know exactly. You can't use anything else. No hammers, no sickles. It has to be a shovel. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. You, Go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna emphasize uh, what you said, man. Because Jack Kirby, he's the king of comics for a reason. He, uh, yeah, I mean, every everything that he did on Fantastic Four was just crazy good. He gets better and better as the run goes longer and longer. And the other thing that blows us away uh, is the fact that after a while, he wasn't just doing Fantastic Four, but he was drawing a bunch of other Marvel comics too, you know? Like, he was he, he pretty much drew... Every other Marvel book, at least for a period of time, like whether it was X-Men, Thor, Avengers, Avengers, yeah, and and Hulk, so on and so forth. You know, the only thing that he he didn't really draw was Spider-Man or Doctor Strange. But like all all these other Marvel books, you know, those were all going on at the same time during these issues of Fantastic Four. and And he still didn't skip a beat. So the fact that he was crazy prolific... And the fact that he combined that uh, output with such high quality, it's really a testament to how great this guy really was. You know, you don't see anybody like that anymore. There is nobody like He was just, uh, you yeah. know, one of a kind, uh, a yeah. guy that stands apart from every other comic book artist. Absolutely. Like, if you went, for those, again, uh, for those of you who aren't too familiar with you know what 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 the comics world is like out there but if you buy a comic today uh it's rare like if you find someone who does 12 issues straight of a comic that is probably yeah. in and of itself today in our modern times in 2020 you know yeah uh, so for him to like do 102 issues of the fantastic four in addition to um all these other books like that's crazy and and again like like you said just in discussing just name checking all of the various titles that he worked on it it almost feels like he built the marvel universe you know yeah yeah absolutely all, all of the titles that we recognize all of the titles that uh you know we now know today from movies that's him you know those are those early versions of their designs and looks, that's him, man. That is him. Mm-hmm. How do you yeah, describe that's... his art, Drew? 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, his his art's definitely. I'd say at the time it 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 was definitely something that was unique to him. You know, like he had a very distinctive style. Even though I think other Marvel artists for a while may have tried to imitate his style as the house style, it was pretty clear that you couldn't really, like, not too many people could really do that successfully. You know, like he yeah. he had his own style, and and eventually even like the other artists, like for example, when we talked about. Uh, Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, earlier on in our in our list, uh, you know that was a strip that Kirby had had drawn prior to Steranko coming on board. But if you look at like those early issues of Steranko, he was pretty much kind of aping Jack Kirby's style, and and after a while, um, you know he moved away from that and started doing his own style. Yeah. But it it just shows you that the fact that Kirby's style, uh just permeated everybody else, you know, you, you couldn't really escape it. And and I think nowadays there's a lot more people who pay homage to Kirby and, and pay tribute to him by drawing in a way that, uh, you know, is reminiscent of, of his style. But, but yeah. if I were just trying to describe his style in and of itself, I'd say the, the earlier issues that he did, uh, they're they're just really uh, flowy, um, and that's that's something I was just hearing. Actually, uh, I heard that on a cartoonist kayfabe because uh, a couple like a week or two ago they they did a breakdown where they, uh, on video where they talked about the first issue of Fantastic Four, and I think uh, Ed Piscor mentioned how flowy Jack Kirby's art is, mm. and it's true because because what what we mean by that is is just when you look at the art it tells a story, you know, like not, not a single panel is wasted telling something that doesn't need to be told. You can just follow and make sense of the story. Even if you didn't have a lot of the text and dialogue, like you could still figure out what was going on just because his art was so clear. Like he, it wasn't confusing. It wasn't hard to look at. It was, it was just really clear in terms of storytelling. And he, he's always had that even, even as his art matured and, and he decided to try new things and, as his art got more, his style uh, aesthetically became more idiosyncratic. He still kept that sense of of storytelling. And when you get to, I don't know, maybe starting close to around like the 30th issue or so, I, I think that's when you, you kind of get to see Jack Kirby crystallize into the Jack Kirby that pretty much everybody recognizes today. Because mm. even before Fantastic Four, right, Jack Kirby had drawn a, a ton of comics uh, in in the previous uh, decade, like whether it was like the old Captain America or, or some romance comics and things like that. Uh, maybe some yeah. Western or monster comics, the stuff that he was doing uh, like in the, in the fifties and stuff or the forties. But when you compare that early stuff to the stuff that we normally think of, when we think of Jack Kirby, when we think of Jack Kirby, now we think of stuff that's, that's a uh, you know larger than life like cosmic stuff. Uh, he he draws a lot of stuff where the the characters aren't necessarily the most uh, I don't know realistic or maybe maybe even sometimes he takes some liberties and with their with their proportions or anatomy. But it always just establishes a mood, man. Like it's it's always just super exciting to look at. It's dynamic, and it still yeah. makes sense. 
you know even even if it's not like photorealistic it it's just fun to to look at and and exciting full of kinetic energy there's a lot of uh yeah just really nice just flat out nice drawing you know yeah the way that i think of him when you know whenever anyone mentions him to me is like i i think of his characters and there's a blockiness to all of them you know and Mm -hmm. all of your heroes are classically square-jawed and uh broad-shouldered and that's it he he really like I would say he he kind of owns that style because uh, you know after that everyone that um, even later on when we we see other things uh, like like the one thing that I can think of is like Superman the animated series I I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. be too surprised if that design of Superman was uh, borrowing uh, stylistic yeah. aesthetics from Jack Kirby's style you know yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure Bruce Tim and, and those guys were influenced by Jack Kirby, no doubt. I mean, yeah. Superman the animated series has a character that is based on Jack Kirby. That's true. You're right. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dan Turpin was Jack Kir- was a stand-in for Jack Kirby of sorts. Yeah, they drew him just like <laughs> how Jack Kirby looked. <laughs> yeah, and I think he even like I you know I never met the guy or anything, but like even the way that he acted or behaved on the show was meant to be reminiscent of jack kirby's real mannerisms in real life yeah yeah Yeah. totally based on on everything i've ever read about jack kirby and uh like old recordings of him yeah dan turpin in the cart in superman the animated series was definitely the you know the cartoon manifestation of jack (laughs) kirby (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah um the other thing the other like um element of his artwork that always stands out to me is just his use of just shapes and uh, geometry, you know? Uh, yeah. And this is something that happens in much later years, but uh, especially the, the thing that I can think of is his new world stuff, but just the way that he designs the world, just the way he designs the vehicles, like, you know, we all know what a plane and a car looks like, but for someone to, if you went up to anyone and you told them, hey, could you draw a vehicle that's not, that's essentially a car, but not a car? Like, it, it's it's that old um, psychology trick where once you tell someone not to think of a dog, they can't help but think of a dog, you know? <laughs> so, you know, like if you came, went up to anyone and told them, hey, can you make, just come up with a vehicle but it's not a car like the amount of creativity it takes to imagine a working vehicle that doesn't look like a car in some way shape or form is inc- is surprisingly hard to do right yeah like, i'm not a creative type at all like in terms of uh art so like if someone came up to me and asked me to draw a car i definitely would probably be like, oh, this is a dolphin with wheels. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> or some, yeah, you know. Even, even some of the, yeah, like I'm just thinking about some of the things that 
that uh, he drew in, in these issues. Um, like some of the, I remember I was just reading one of the issues where the Fantastic Four were were riding this kind of uh, like it was kind of like a flying motorcycle kind of thing, but the way that that he drew it, it was all it wasn't like a bunch of it didn't have a a thick chassis or anything. It was just like it 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 was it looked kind of like a bunch of pipes and tubes that were connected with some seats and handlebars that the riders could hold on to that the fantastic four could hold on to as they you know rocketed through the sky and it it kind of reminded me of a proto prototype for orion's astro harness nice yeah no that like your description right there like sums it up too right so like not only is the base shape of whatever the vehicle is like pretty unique unto itself but the designs that are put on it the the mechanisms that he draws on it are just so original and unique like he'll just draw yeah. and, and, and ornate you know there are just all these pipes and tubes and gears and just also just you know the 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 inner workings of of machinery imagined in just yeah. such an explosive way it's crazy to to like look at some of these things it's it's the sort of thing that like I love his vehicles and his machines because you can and his cities you can just like look and marvel at them for for like long for like minutes thirty minutes or something like that and just appreciate just mm-hmm. the level of effort and work and creativity that he put into making this thing into des- designing this thing. Yeah. yeah, and and sometimes even his maybe even most of the time his his machinery and and his technology doesn't necessarily look like something that could possibly exist in the real world but it's just so imaginative to look at and and fun to look at like i think of uh when he when he draws uh reed's lab like all the stuff that all the machines and the gadgets and things in in reed's lab they don't look like anything but when you just look at the panel or or the the page it, it looks like a, a madman is designing all sorts of crazy things that you have no idea what they are, yeah. but you're just impressed nonetheless. Totally, totally. It's just the the other thing that I remember, the other panel that I remember, and it was it was kind of a funny little panel was, um, so the very first version of the Fantastic Car, which is the vehicle yeah. that they fly around in, it's just a giant bathtub. It's a giant pill bathtub looking thing that they that flies them from one location to the next mm-hmm. and then uh, you know uh a few issues into the series he designs this whole new fantastic car and it's like a kid's dream you know it's this yeah. giant vehicle with four parts and the parts split apart so that each member of the fantastic four has their own uh portion of the ship that can fly off on its own and it reconnects you know it's kind of like the early version of voltron or something but before for before voltron clearly yeah but uh it's it's just it's fun and in the panel where they like talk about it they even write in some dialogue where you know some fans had written to the fantastic four uh you know inside the story that their old vehicle looked like a bathtub so reed just you know, imagined yeah. up this this machine for them to fly around in. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was pretty funny. Another thing that I thought of was uh, those first issues when they introduced the Black Panther and the Fantastic Four go to Wakanda. And the way that he draw that Jack Kirby draws the the techno jungles there, it's it's totally something out of a I don't know like a like a scientist psychedelic dream or something because yeah. it's just these these weird bits of machinery and gigantic uh, tubes or or knobs and and things that don't really look like anything, but when you when you look at it, it, it absolutely just creates a vivid setting you know like there's there's no way that something that impractical could uh exist in real life but you just wish it did anyway because it looks so cool yeah yeah totally um and a lot of the other tricks that that he uh that he's known for and that people still imitate today you know he he formed a lot of that here like the stuff like the 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 kirby crackle you know when he does when he draws energy blast you know everybody everybody does that nowadays but i think he might have been the first one to to really you know make that a signature yeah and then another thing that uh really stood out was his use of photo collages so like there would be there would be splash pages here and there when when the fantastic four would be going to outer space or some other dimension or something and instead of just uh penciling the the scenery he would actually craft a photo collage and and i remember reading something i forget where i read it but from what from my understanding uh one of his ideas was when he was going to draw the the negative zone he was going to try and make it so that every every scene in the negative zone would be a photo collage and because that's you know how the negative zone looks different from the world that the fantastic four inhabit mm. but i guess because it was so time consuming. He, it ended up not being worth it for him. So he only ended up doing it, uh, whenever, you know, I guess the mood called for it, but yeah, just that, the, the idea of doing a photo collage in a, in a comic book, I don't think, I don't think anyone had really done that before. I mean, I could be wrong. My, uh, admittedly, my, my knowledge of a lot of old comics is a little, uh, spotty, but in terms of all the superhero comics from the era that I've read, yeah, I've, I've only really seen that in Fantastic Four. Uh, I mean, I, I think Steranko might have done some of that in in Shield, but um, there's a good chance that Kirby was the one who who popularized it. Yeah, yeah, I I love those Kirby crackles that you talk about. Just the way that he does action scenes, like everything just kind of jumps out, you know, at, at his best. It just looks like things are just jumping out at you and, you know, the action is just frenetic, you know, Mm -hmm. those energy blasts are just, they're just so fun to look at. Like, I I don't have any other way to to describe them, you know, but it's, 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 it's not just your typical laser blast, which is, you know, like, you know, uh, usually some straight line, it's a straight line or some variation of fire, you know? Yeah. Um, But like what he draws, it's got, it's, it's an energy signature that's got depth to it, you know, cause there are layers essentially. So you have the energy and then you have the crackles and then you have the, the outer uh, portion of the laser itself. And mm-hmm. there's just so much going on. Yeah. It, it's, it's, 
really detailed for what it is. The other thing that I was going to say about the craft of the series is how how well constructed the stories themselves are. So just to uh, summarize the, the context that I'm sure many people are already familiar with, but Stan Lee and, and Kirby established the, the Marvel method or popularized the Marvel method. And what that is, is the two of them would talk about uh, the story and the plot and the characters. And then Kirby would go and draw the issue. He would pencil the issue. So he would be responsible for, for laying it out and, and pacing it and everything. And then Stan Lee would take those pages and, and then insert the dialogue and any narrative captions, all the words. And that was how they worked uh not just on this but on a lot of other comics and it ended up being the the way that marvel uh did a lot of their comics uh for a period of time mm. back in those days i guess part of it was because stan lee was writing so many comics he didn't really have time to write a full script for everything he was writing because back in those yeah. days man he was writing all the marvel books so yeah. it was just easier for the artist to do some of the heavy lifting but the the fact that that's how they worked and they were able to have this sustained run of cohesiveness says a lot yeah i think one of the things that i appreciate about the run is how it's it's not a soap opera in the sense that it's uh constantly ridiculous like a soap opera is but it's it's got that thing where it's the issues aren't merely episodic, but it's actually serialized storytelling. Mm. And I think a lot of superhero comics before Fantastic Four really were more focused on uh, episodic kind of storytelling. I mean, yeah, yeah. you might have had things like in in uh, Captain Marvel, right? Like Shazam, like they they might have had like the secret society of monsters or whatever that story was called, where it was, I don't know, like 15 or 18 parts or something. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, stuff like that. It wasn't, but it, it was rare, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't like uh, how no. fantastic four had it where in fantastic four, it wasn't like they had to have a 12 part epic. They just had a series that kept on going and things that happened in uh, issues, seven you know might have ramifications in issue 18 so like things would would come back and all the experiences that the characters had you know those didn't just fade away at the end of the issue but it stuck with them and and there was real character development there was real plotting going on like stuff going on with the inhumans had had a you know it had a lot a long time to gestate so some of the stories were just able to uh, breathe more naturally where you didn't really feel like uh, something would start one issue and then end the next issue and then you could just forget about it but it, it actually kind of encourages you to hang on to those experiences that you read because you might need to remember some of those characters uh, moving forward you know yeah no I, I totally get what you mean like when you read some of the the old Supermans or Batmans, it, yeah, it really does feel like those are just kind of one-off 
episodic issues. You know, it's like, well, that's the end of that one crazy adventure. What are they going to do next week? Yeah. And with the Fantastic Four, I guess that's the thing that makes it seem... It's that consistency that makes it seem... uh, I'm hard-pressed to say real, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It, it it imitates real life in the sense that you know with people and the relationships that they have in real life that's that's really closer to how real life functions right is that yeah. ability for you know things happen whether you're there in that moment or not you know the world still goes on um around you whether you're there or not so right it totally would make sense for them to come back to something and to have progression in the story, even if it's off panel, right? But it's established <laughs> that, you know, the that these changes are in the midst of happening. Um and it yeah, it's not a hard end to their story. It's just, you know, uh at some point we'll find we we circle back around to these other um creative creations that they uh introduced into their world and yeah. only to find new changes and new progression and it, it's yeah it's that level of consistency and world building is essentially what yeah it is. world building yeah and world building so, and character development exactly yeah exactly and it makes sense for them to have their personalities carry over in each issue like it's the so i i I have to admit to our listeners that although um you know this is something that we selected for our number one pick and this these were stories that i was familiar with i have to admit to you guys that i've never actually read these comics but as someone who was you know who grew up in comics and who like absorbed information on these like oddly enough i'm versed enough in the fantastic four and their lore that it it feels like i've almost read them all you know so yeah so reading these comics for the first time it's interesting to see how so so the thing about marvel comics in this era was that they introduced a one of the large things that they introduced was character flaws into their characters. And, uh, you know, prior to this, Superman was, you know, almost perfect. And so was Batman. And so was Wonder Woman. Like, your your heroes were... were... were shown... or, yeah, were shown to the readers as just characters that had their stuff together... They were just ultimate paragons. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the best way to put it. And and one of the th- and again, one of the things that Marvel introduced in this era of comics was that a lot of these characters acted, you know, uh, relatively close to the way that real people acted. A lot of these characters had chips on their shoulders. So the the story of the Fantastic Four going into space, well. The reason that they got their powers in part was that Reed Richards, he was arrogant and he mm-hmm. he made a decision that ultimately ends up, it gives them superpowers, but 
his best friend, Benjamin Grimm, ends up being affected in a negative way because he ends up being a giant rock monster. Yeah. He's trapped in that form. And that's something that we see that I, I noticed again and again in all of these early issues, uh, just how much he was dealing with how he didn't want to be this monster. And again, and Reed's original sin being that he was arrogant and his arrogance cost his friend his humanity. So uh, it, that weighs around his neck and he's constantly trying to fix uh, what happened to, to, to the thing. And it surprises me how often in these earlier issues, how often they have the thing turn into Benjamin Grimm only to revert back like again and again and again, you know? Yeah, it's like this cruel little tease, you know. Like yeah. every time uh, Reed Richards says, "I found this, this uh, try this antidote. This should cure you," and he tries yeah. it, and he's like, "Hey, I'm Ben Grimm." And then you know, five minutes later, he's like, "Oh man, I'm the thing again." <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and then on, on, oh, go ahead. What were you gonna say? I was gonna say the, the, another funny thing about the the origin story is how Ben Grimm he was the pilot of the rocket, but originally he was like. No, we can't fly that rocket. That's a stupid idea. You know, it it, it doesn't have radiation shielding. And then the the way that they manipulate him into flying the rocket for them is Sue Storm. So, chicken. <laughs> yeah, I thought I, she was like, I didn't know you were a coward. And then he's like, what? Nobody calls me a coward. Let's go to space. <laughs> oh, man. One of the other things that I noticed in these early issues was... Um, I knew Namor was a big part of their backstory or like it's, he's a big part of their lore, but one of the things that I noticed was I didn't realize just how much he was in their comics in these early uh, issues. And yeah. Yeah. Especially and, like those first 20 issues. He's, he's in quite a few of those. Exactly. And they, they really wanted to build again, like back to the idea of like introducing flaws into these characters. They really, really were hammering the point home about this love triangle between Reed, Sue and Namor, you know, like it felt like every two or three issues, Namor would show up again and Sue would be torn between like, I, I, I don't even know if she really had or showed too much affection to Reed in those early issues. Cause I, I, I think there were a couple of scenes here or there where Reed was interested in Sue, but mm -hmm. when Namor was around, Sue was all about Namor. <laughs> yeah, because, dude, Namor's hot, man. And he doesn't wear a shirt. He's just got this perfect body, and he's walking around flying and stuff. Yeah. Like, he's buff. Yeah. Yeah, he's a beefcake, dude. <laughs> he's a beefcake, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, just an Adonis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and again like to the idea of these flaws it's just like there we go just another one of these flaws uh these hu not flaws necessarily but like human conflicts right so yeah it's, it's like for sue it's this uh indecision between her loyalty to reed and her love or not not even love i i can only describe it as lust towards namor <laughs> yeah yeah 
it's like she's she's always trying to figure out where he is. She's using Reed's devices to try and track him down and yeah. and you know find out where he is without uh, Reed knowing that she's looking for Namor. It's like, <laughs> it's like wow, I I didn't realize that those early issues until I read these issues. Uh, and I guess it was the same for you um, until we started reading these issues to prepare. It was almost yeah. like, like, like we knew that that Namor and Sue had it had some history together, but I I never really realized that Sue was so infatuated with Namor back in the day. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. Again, back to my earlier point, which was that I. I as a kid, I didn't have access to these comics. The library was uh, in its infancy in terms of having comics at all. Back, back in those days, man, a lot of these comics weren't available at all. Yeah, that exactly. So, you know, the combination of not being readily available in reprints and the library not having them at all, I, like, I wasn't able to read these. And if it wasn't for Marvel cards and cartoons um, and even the comics of the current uh, the comics in their current current iterations, self-referencing those um, those story points, I wouldn't have been familiar with their backstories at all, you know. Yeah. So, so you know, reading it now, it's interesting to to see all these little things that you pick up. Like, yeah, again, like just how often Namor shows up. It's it's weird. If it was like a sitcom, he'd be almost like the kooky neighbor that shows up to this family yeah. home, but he's he's got the hots for the wife and she's always titillated by him yeah. <laughs> well technically they weren't married soon they weren't, yeah, they weren't that's married true. They were time. yeah that's true so i, I guess that makes it okay <laughs> <laughs> titillate away namor titillate away <laughs> You know, when we were growing up, these comics were not easy to find, but I do remember some of them were occasionally reprinted. Like when uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe did their episode covering the first issue, they they were covering a copy. They were talking over a copy of um, the a Marvel Masterworks reprint, yeah. a, a one-issue reprint of issue one. That was from the early '90s, and and I remember when I was a kid, I had that same comic too. It was the one with the silver border around the original cover. Yeah, I mean, and that was I actually had that when I was a kid. So that was the, f- the first time that, so I, I had read that original first issue like over and over when I was a kid. Something that that I grew up with, even though when I was a kid, I I didn't actually like the Fantastic Four. Because the the series from the early '90s when I was reading, it just sucked, man. I think it was Tom DeFalco, and it was just bad. Like yeah. it, it turned me off from the Fantastic Four for a long time. But I remember just well. I mean, you just as a comics fan, even even if you're a kid, you know that there are certain issues that are that are uh, key moments, right? Like they're they're just important moments. And Fantastic Four number one was obviously critical to the marvel yeah. universe yeah. so when i remember i saw that issue and I, I had to get it and even though at the time i don't think i really uh appreciated the art as much i remember reading that comic over and over just because it had so many words you know i felt like i was getting a lot of value for my money yeah <laughs> something to read over and over and then i think there were some some reprints that had a couple other issues here and there 
Like, I think I want to say they did one that had the first appearance of of uh, Doctor Doom, and then maybe the one where uh, Doctor Doom and and Namor team up. I, the so, one I remember was um, they did one of those reprints where it was Spider Man versus the Fantastic Four. I forget. Yeah, who that was, but um, I want to say that was that like might have been uh, Amazing Spider Man number one. I think. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So that that was definitely one of the ones, uh, the big ones that I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So so like back in the nineties, those were those random reprints were the only way we could access those old comics because they didn't have trade paperbacks of, of all that stuff. Like the, even the, the black and white essential stuff, that, that stuff didn't come out until I was in like high school, I think. Mm. But nowadays we're, we're living in a time when all of these comics are Everything. online. You know, you can just go on Comixology or get Marvel Unlimited and you have instant access to all of these classic comics. Yeah. Or you and even, and even if you don't go online and get the digital versions, you can just, go to the comic store and get the trade paperback or the hardcover. They have omnibuses of this stuff. So it's, yeah. it's in all sorts of formats. Uh, I was reading mine off of uh, Hoopla, which is the San Francisco public library e-library. And that's how I was reading my issues. So, yeah. so for those of you, if you're uh, inspired by our, our pick, um, you know, feel free to try it out off of Hoopla at your local library. Yeah. Anything you want to? Anything else you want to say about the craft before we move on to the other criteria, Albert? No, I'm 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 pretty satisfied with what we've said. We've covered all the things that excite me uh, in terms of the the actual making of the book. Nice, nice. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's talk about uh, the originality. So originality, just referring to the creativity and the imagination within the comic and whether it had something new or meaningful to say so yeah what do you want to say about the originality of this run of fantastic four it's interesting i feel like we we couldn't help but cover the originality in the craft because so much Mm -hmm. of the craft was discussing how original the concepts uh like the artwork was so again like you know, a lot of its originality, I'd have to credit to Jack Kirby's um, designs and styles. Uh, in terms of the story itself, uh, again, we mentioned it, this in the previous segment, but uh, you know, these early Marvel comics, they the the one thing that they introduced was the the idea of flawed characters as their protagonists and. That's why you see a lot of these, a lot of the members of the Fantastic Four having these, um, what are those, what's, what's that called? Dramatic flaws or what's the, what's the term for that in, uh, Shakespeare? <laughs> uh, uh, I, man, I, I, I don't remember. You know what I'm talking about though, right? It's like a uh, tragic flaw. There we go. <laughs> tragic flaw. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'd have to say, like, I I don't know if Fantastic Four was the first comic to do, uh, well, okay, I'm, I want to say it's the first comic to have, like, the family theme. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if any of the other comics ever had something similar to that. Can, can you think of anything, Drew? Uh, does Archie count? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
the thing I was going to say was I, there were a lot of things that would come about later where the, the one obvious uh, comparison that I feel like I have to mention is Lost in Space, where it was a sci-fi TV show. I don't remember what, what the time period for that was exactly, but um, it was a TV show about a scientist who takes his family into space and they, they get lost in space. And it's you know it's about it's about them trying to find their way home, but you know the it's hard not to draw the comparisons because it's about a family of adventurers, science adventurers. Um, yeah, uh, so I, I I'm I'm hard pressed to say uh, that. I, I can't say for certain that Fantastic Four was the first to do something like that, but uh, uh, I think it was. I think it's fair to say it was the first to do that in a superhero context. Yeah, exactly. So when we when we phrase it that way, I, I believe that much. Um, yeah, actually, it says here it aired between the Lost in Space show aired between 1965 and 1968. So. Um, Fantastic Four beat them to it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there we go. So uh, the Fantastic Four's originality, like, you know, it's 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 something so simple, but there's something – there. it's a pretty – it's a simple hook, but it's a really fun hook at the same time, you mm-hmm. know? Like, yeah. it's so simple that it's kind of surprising that no one thought of it before that. Yeah. Because yeah. if you look at the, the superhero team books that predate the Fantastic Four, like, if you think about the Justice Society or the, or the Justice League. Yeah. Invaders, like, I mean. Invaders. Yeah. Did Justice League predate the Fantastic Four? I will have to check, but a lot of those books... A lot of those books just portrayed their portrayed their superheroes as a team of you know individual heroes who want to unite to do good and to fight for right and justice, and it was a lot of carbon copies of that like idea. Yeah, yeah. I just looked it up. Uh, the first appearance of the Justice League was in March 1960. So yeah, they they predate predate the Fantastic Four. Yeah, but you're right when you look at the. Justice Society or the Justice League or any of those old World War II era concepts, yeah. those uh, they're not really families, you know? Like, you don't really... Back in those days, you didn't really have uh, the heroes arguing with each other. You wouldn't have the Flash and Green Lantern arguing with Batman and Wonder Woman or, or anything like that, you know? Like, they would just yeah. work as a team because... That's what heroes do, you know. They they respect each other and they they just do the right thing all the time because they're superheroes. They're good. That's because they're good. Yeah, exactly. And apparently, apparently, uh, good people aren't allowed to have arguments or disagreements whatsoever. (laughs) 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 But when you get to Fantastic Four, they're. Not only is their defining trait the fact that they're a family, but like a real family, they're 
they have bickering, you know, they have bickering and conflict. There are times when they say and do petty things to each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's like when you're when you're with your family, your family sees the worst side of you because you're just being yourself. You know? <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. because all of us we're just horrible, terrible people. Human beings are a blight upon this planet. Yeah. And yeah. the only thing that holds us back is probably, you know, what other people think of us. Yeah. Uh, but when you're with people that you don't care what they think about you because you know that you have their unconditional favor and love, you're just going to be what you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all, yeah. all of that pettiness is going to come out and you're not going to be worried about saying something cruel to hurt them because you're just being yourself. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of how the that's that's uh that's why I often say whatever cruel things I say to my family because I know that they have no other choice but to take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey ladies, I'm single. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to marry this? <laughs> if anyone out there is excited about being taken for granted forever, you should definitely hit up my dude, Albert. <laughs> if you feel like you're not getting a regular dose of verbal abuse and neglect, I'm your Ryan. I'm your guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. There, there are some moments in the comic when... I read some of the stuff that uh, Johnny and Ben were saying to each other. It's like, man, those guys, sometimes it feels like they're just being really cruel jerks to each other, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, especially they, they in the early issues. Like pranks, but, yeah. But there are times where it's just like, uh, I don't, I, I fail to see where the joke is in like <laughs> constantly pointing out the fact that the thing is a freak. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I don't. Yeah. I maybe I'm just not getting the joke. Maybe I'm not seeing the humor in it, but that's kind of messed up, man. <laughs> it's pretty messed up. And then and then uh, it, it's the, the funny thing is is that they're always arguing and and even fighting each other. Um, you know, n they never seriously hurt each other, but they're you know they're damaging the the building where they live because they're you know human torches shooting his flames and things trying to smash him but he, he keeps on missing and hitting the furniture instead stuff like that ha happens all the time um so you 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 do get the sense that there's this uh yeah just constant pettiness or or bickering between them but but the other thing that's nice to see is that without fail every single time that the chips are down you can tell that both of them are willing to sacrifice themselves for the other. Yeah. And, and yeah. they actually, they actually do really love each other. They just, uh, you know, they, they just express it with their actions rather than with their words. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it does remind me of the concept of what a family typically is and the fantastic four, you know they they're even 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 Reed Richards and and Sue you know they're they're not above the the pettiness either they like everybody constantly has uh some kind of issue or 
dysfunction with another member of the group. But whenever things matter, they put that aside and they do what it takes to help each other. And, yeah. and that's kind of the fun thing to see in, in all of these stories. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's something that I, I don't think was really depicted in, in superhero comics before. Well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned their dysfunction because I don't know what... Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and reference a lot of popular culture stuff here, but, like, it, it kind of reminds me of... Um, like, I feel like in that era you know, the post-World War II era, a lot of television uh, specifically was about showing how the American family was kind of pristine and pure and untouchable. And um, you would have something like Leave it to Beaver or something like that, right? Where everything was very wholesome and um, people weren't weren't mean or cruel to one another like it yeah that that was kind of the just how the shows portrayed the american families and um for the fantastic four to also go that extra step and to portray not again not only was this the first family of superheroes or the first uh superhero team to portray itself as a family but like you said earlier, it was a family that had its occasion, occasional dysfunctions, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, yeah, I, I think that's something that now in our modern age, uh, now that we've seen so many shows that were that revolve around the premise of, like, the dysfunction of the family as humor or as drama, like, we've, we kind of forget how 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 different this is relative to what 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 was out at the time yeah you know yeah it's definitely different compared to the stuff at the time mm. even even a, another concept that was original to fantastic 4 was uh the fact that being a superhero could be a curse or make you a freak mm. that wasn't something that uh that superman had to deal with even though he was an alien yeah you know, he he wasn't an outcast people didn't people didn't want to uh you know kick him off the planet or anything yeah he was just a he hero was beloved yeah he was beloved or or uh i don't know like the flash or somebody like nobody thought that he was a freak for yeah being so fast or or anything like well, that well, I I go as far as to say that I think the way that comics were sold to kids was that kids wanted to be these guys, right? Mm-hmm. So, you mm-hmm. know, you would see Green Lantern, you would see the you know Wonder Woman, you would see the Flash, you would see Superman, Captain America, and the idea in terms of like if, if we strip it down to like marketing, the idea is oh we want kids to. Uh, picture themselves wanting to be these heroes right yeah because that's that's what excites them and it it's 
it's what sells him on the idea of uh, internalizing the character. Mm-hmm. And, and for the first time, uh, you know, with the thing, we've mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but for the first time, he's you have this guy who has this amazing power, but the downside is he's stuck in this uh, form where, for all intents and purposes, he's considered ugly by everybody else around him and he he can't even he doesn't even have the like i i imagine he doesn't have like the tactile ability to really like be delicate with things you know like Uh it's hard to imagine that he he can hold like a glass without breaking it or yeah I, I like I even I don't know if they ever addressed this in the comics, but I don't even know if he uh like what his sense of touch is like. You know. Yeah. Like, does he? Does because his skin is literally like the way it looks. It looks like rock. So like yeah. when he touches something, does he feel like textures? Uh, I don't know. I was never really sure of that. So. Yeah, that's a good question. We might have to do some research on that. Yeah. But it, it is interesting to see that the original idea of the Fantastic Four was that these heroes could be looked at as outcasts. You know, typically I think we consider uh, the X-Men to be at the forefront of that type of concept. But if you look at the original X-Men, they're all pretty normal-looking people, right? Angel has has wings, but other than that, they all look like normal people. You know, Beast is pretty big, but he he just looks like a a buff dude. Uh, Cyclops has his his, uh, ruby quartz glasses, but they're basically just red sunglasses. Yeah. Uh, Iceman, you know, he can change forms, so he's he looks normal when he's not iced up. And Jean Grey, she's just, you know, your normal, average, pretty girl. Uh, so they're not really freaks or anything. But compared to the Thing, you know, the Thing, he's he's somebody that looks like an actual freak, you know, a monster. If and and the other thing that I noticed especially in the early issues, like maybe like the first, I don't know, 10 or 20 issues, the way that Kirby was drawing the thing at those times in those issues, he looked a lot more uh, lumpy. Yeah. You know, he, he didn't really look, it wasn't until like later on in, in the run when the thing starts looking like the thing that we recognize today. Like some of those yeah. early issues, he just looks lumpy. He looks like more, like he has mud. those early issues. Yeah, he he looked he had more in common with the monster comics that Marvel is doing before Fantastic Four. Yeah. Yeah. Uh it it was fair to say that he was it it made sense to say that he was unappealing to the eye of the average person in their universe. Yeah. You know? Like mm-hmm. he, like when they redesigned him to to have that more rocky exterior like yeah, there's still the downside of, uh, you know, him not being able to touch or feel things like a normal person. Um, mm-hmm. But 
He looked cool. <laughs> that yeah, Rocky look, totally. That Rocky look is a cool look. <laughs> yeah, he's a great design. Yeah. Fantastic design for a character. Yeah. yeah. Another thing that I thought uh, was pretty fresh that they did was they didn't have the Fantastic Four didn't have secret identities, but they were basically celebrities, yeah. which I think was unusual, if not unprecedented at the time. Yeah, I like I can't confirm that, but um, you know, it feels like when you look at their contemporaries, uh, the of the other heroes in in that era, that uh, the everybody was obsessed that. with having a secret identity. Exactly, like. Uh, the idea of maintaining your secret identity and, uh, you know, uh, separating those two aspects of your lives, that was a big deal. You know, it was a big, uh, it was a big focal point for the drama was how is Superman going to be Superman without letting people know that he's also Clark Kent? Mm -hmm. You know, it it was part of his ongoing drama. And for once, you had these characters who were just like, yeah, this is just who we are, who we are. And, uh, you know, uh, we're these people all the time. And, you know, uh, when when a crisis happens, we're going to come out and we're going to deal with it. But on top of that, we're also going to use our celebrity to get us a vacation to Tahiti. And <laughs> <laughs> which was a, I, it wasn't Tahiti. Yeah. I'm not I forget where they went, but. They, that really did happen. They did use their celebrity to get free tickets to go on a cruise. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, yeah. They, uh, they definitely, there were definitely times in the story where, where they ended up capitalizing or, or taking advantage of their fame for their own yeah. enjoyment or even personal gain. Yeah, I will say it's interesting, like, reading it in, in retrospect, because at the time that, you know, again, not having read these when they first originally came out, uh, like, when when you, when I heard them, uh, when I heard about these stories, they were usually condensed, and, you know, there's a lot that they leave out in terms of um, information for the sake of time, but rereading it now it's interesting seeing these little things like the fantastic for um you know using like the invisible girl you know going to a modeling agency to mm-hmm. you know to get free clothes but to also make money off her celebrity to by being in magazines and yeah films and stuff you know like it's stuff yeah. that they don't really like I think occasionally the Fantastic Four will touch on that sort of stuff in their current incarnations, but it it always feels like it's a one-off sort of thing when it does happen, and it's interesting to see how much a part of this, how regularly this was a part of the series in the early series, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think comics today, or modern comics, I should say, modern comics a lot of modern superhero comics kind of took that idea and explored it in different ways too. Uh, I guess that may, might fall under the, the category of the impact this had, but you know, nowadays it, it's not, 
too out of the ordinary to find a comic that explores the concept of the superhero as a celebrity. You know, even just off the top of my head, you know, we had uh, Ecstatics, which we talked about earlier in our top 25 list also. And, and that totally took the idea of superheroes as celebrities to, you know, the nth degree. Or yeah. even 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 something dumb from the 90s, like Youngblood, you know, <laughs> like Rob Liefeld's yeah. Youngblood. That, that kind of, it didn't do a good job of exploring the idea, but... <laughs> You know, it was still basically about superheroes as celebrities, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they took the the very core basic concept of it and he did his version of it. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. I, I acknowledge that that is something he did. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> we, we give him full acknowledgement for his yes. accomplishments. <laughs> I'm not even going to call it an accomplishment. I'm going to stick to, to, I acknowledge that he did something. (laughs) (laughs) I ain't giving him that. (laughs) An accomplishment is an honor. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) One more thing that I had in my notes in regards to the originality was just the crazy amount of new creations and characters and concepts that Stan Lee and Kirby and Jack Kirby created uh, throughout the course of their run. Like so many things that they created are still being strip mined by Marvel comics today. Absolutely. Like all of these different characters. I mean, even, even within a span of several issues, right? Like in the, like around issue 40 something you have the introduction of the inhumans followed yeah. by galactus and the silver surfer followed by the black panther and wakanda and then the negative zone it's like all of these tent poles of the marvel universe are introduced in rapid succession and even to this day they form like they're they're still critical parts of the marvel universe right right like all all these characters man dr doom uh i mean they didn't create namor but the fact that they brought him back into prominence Mm. uh you know puppet master mad thinker and the awesome android diablo and dragon man red ghost (laughs) red ghost and his super apes (laughs) uh the frightful four wizard Uh, Sandman, Medusa, and Paste Pot Pete. <laughs> so, all, so many characters introduced in these comics that are still alive and, and kicking today. You know, yeah. Blackstar, Annihilist, The Negative Zone. Yeah. Man, what else am I forgetting? I, I feel like there's more stuff, but like there's those are the ones that come to mind. What was that? I said there's a ton of stuff. Like earlier, there was 102 issues. But I do feel like this is a good way to segue into the next... uh, Mm -hmm. um, To the next... Criteria. uh, Criteria that we, you know, measure... uh, That we measure... That we use to measure what made the Fantastic Four our number one pick, which is the impact of the Fantastic Mm -hmm. Four. Mm -hmm. So, like you mentioned, like all the creations that they put into their... Like the Inhumans, 
right? That's, yeah. that's something that was huge in the Marvel universe for a while. But yeah, you you just you just shot off a bunch of names, and all those all those different ideas were things that would come back into the Marvel universe uh, that are still being strip mined to this very day, right? Yeah. So you have Black Panther, you have the world of Wakanda, you have Doctor Doom. Um, like, uh, they're constantly doing stories about Galactus, you know, that, like, that story yep. in and of itself is, like, the, the, the original story about the coming of Galactus is something that they have done over and over again, and it feels like every couple of years they find a new way to do some version of that, you know, uh, you know, yeah. coming some version of the coming of Galactus as world ender. And yeah, it, 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 we see these, uh, these core concepts that Jack Kirby and Stanley created and they clearly left such an impact so much so that the Marvel universe to this day doesn't feels that they can um, so much so that to this day, the Marvel universe feels like they can go back and to these touchstone stories and expand mm-hmm. upon upon them even more, you know. Like, yeah. How crazy is that? All these years later, you know. Yeah, it it just shows you how vibrant their imaginations were at the time, and the fact that those stories had lasting influence on yeah everything uh, up to today. You yeah. know, it, it's it's like if 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 somehow if if everything. Uh, if every Marvel comic that ever existed were erased out of existence, but we still had these 102 issues of Fantastic Four, we could still reconstitute the entire Marvel universe. Yeah, yeah. You know? Totally. There's like, it's like almost everything that ever mattered to Marvel was in these pages. It's it, it truly is the foundation of Marvel Comics as we know it today. Yeah. Before before Fantastic Four, Marvel was not doing well. You know, they they were churning out the same kind of junk that a lot of other companies were doing. Your random horror comics or monster comics, uh, you know, and and they weren't they weren't really financially lucrative. Yeah. Heck, even if you look at the first issue of Fantastic Four. That's basically a monster comic. It's almost like Marvel was hedging their bets. They're like, well, what we really know is monster comics, but it looks like DC Comics is doing pretty well with their superhero comics. They have the Justice League. Why don't we do our own team? And and Marvel, it's almost like Marvel's looking at that and they're like, yeah, we, we got to, you know, jump on that bandwagon. But, but uh, people still buy our comics because they're monster comics. So we got to have monsters. And that's why the first issue has a giant monster on the cover, you know? <laughs> right, right. And, and even, yeah, even you. the thing, he still looks like a monster from one of their monster comics. And, and they got the mole man. Yeah. The mole man was a guy that we forgot to name check. Uh, but yeah. He, he's another guy that, that, that stands out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just that this whole, this whole run is the foundation of Marvel comics it also kickstarted Marvel's entry into the Silver Age. They, you know, they call it the Marvel Age of comics because of the Fantastic Four. Yeah, 
it's it's just something that has so much lasting influence and and has left such a big mark on Marvel Comics, the Marvel Universe, and I, I guess you know by extension you could even say the influence is felt even in pop culture. You know, even though the Fantastic Four movies haven't been successful, at least they've had movies. You know, and and they're yeah. you know, even even as a kid, uh, they they were in cartoons, they were uh, on lunch boxes and and other products. Like people might not have been buying Fantastic Four comics in the '90s, but everybody, every kid, still knew knew who they were. There, yeah, exactly. People are at least peripherally aware of them. They mm-hmm. they they exist in the subconscious, um, of the. Uh, this is gonna be sound pretentious, but the subconscious of the zeitgeist, right? <laughs> <laughs> Those are big um, words, man. You went to college. Uh, yeah, I went to Debray. Um, <laughs> I I fix refrigerators. You know, uh, not for a company. I just break into people's homes and I fix their refrigerators. <laughs> <laughs> This episode um, of Between the Gutters has been brought to you by DeVry College. <laughs> or is it DeVry University? DeVry University. <laughs> I thought you were going to say this episode of Between the Gutters has been brought to you by Home Invasions. It's what for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like, uh, again, in terms of, like, other ways that these comics impacted uh yeah so we so it it's it's hard to deny that all of the creations and uh stories that they created in their time uh didn't end up affecting or yeah i i, I was gonna say infecting but uh it didn't end up spreading uh it spreading throughout the rest of the Marvel universe in later years, you know, um, mm-hmm. as again, as these were like touchstones that the Marvel universe could keep going back to, but even things like some of the stuff that we mentioned earlier, like the, the impact of having, you know, your first superhero comic where that had a family on the cover, like, again, like, I'm I'm gonna do some pop culture references, but you don't have something like the Incredibles without something like the Fantastic Four. The Incredibles yeah. is clearly a uh, I'm not gonna say it's a homage to the Fantastic Four, but it's it's an ersatz version of the Fantastic Four. You know, mm-hmm. like the idea is essentially the Fantastic Four. Um, yeah. So uh, things like that, uh, the that that family core, uh, that and even their dysfunctions, we would see those in later years in other in other comics. Like, you know, I'm not gonna say that every time we see uh, some family theme in some of the in in another comic book, you know, uh, that it's attributed to the Fantastic Four. Like, but. It's also hard for me to deny that, like, I find it hard to imagine that someone who wrote some, uh, like, let's let's say we take, for example, something like, um, 
like the later incarnations of the Justice Society or Teen Titans where, you know, they tell these stories where they they frame those teams as families, quote unquote families. It's it's hard for me to say that I know for certain that they've never read a Fantastic Four. Comic <laughs> and that they I actually find that hard to believe. Yeah. You think so? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. But, it, yeah, I, I just imagine that those elements of uh, those early elements of the Fantastic Four and their uh, family-centric drama, it, it's stuff that I'm sure impacted other comics that would explore those ideas uh, later on, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. In, in addition to that, uh, you have stuff like, again, Kirby's art, Jack Kirby's art, you know, that, that stuff where even today when uh, we'll see someone like Tom Scioli, for example, who does comics today, and, you know, he... You can tell that he's got so much love for Jack Kirby. He heck, dude even wrote a comic about Jack Kirby. Yeah. You know? He wrote a and biography. He wrote a biography and it's just He wrote and drew it. A yeah, he wrote biography. and drew it. And he did it in the style of Kirby, you know? And it's again, I'm not gonna go and pick out every comic and be like, well, you can tell Spawn was influenced by Jack Kirby by this or that. <laughs> I'm not going to say that, but it's hard to imagine that anyone who's done comics wasn't influenced by the art of Jack Kirby. You know? Yeah. Like, he, yeah. Like, again, I'm not, I am not someone who's knowledgeable enough about art to be able to point out specific elements of artistic flourishes that I could attribute to Jack Kirby. But, Again, I'm just going to I'm going to take it on faith and I'm just going to say that it is in all likelihood whether they are mimicking Kirby or or simply influenced trying, by him or simply influenced by him or even if they're trying to do something that is the opposite of him. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's 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 undeniable that they have not seen his work and that it did not even subconsciously affect them on some level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was I was actually thinking about um creators who are who were who are or who were influenced by by Kirby and one of the things that came to mind was uh Thor by Walter Simonson's Walter Simonson since we discussed that on our top 25 list also. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could you can see from Simonson's art that that dude had a respect for Kirby and he he took some elements of of Kirby's style. He he obviously draws, he has his own stamp, you know, he has his own style. He's not just some some biter, but you could tell that the way that Kirby drew most likely influenced how Walt Simonson drew. Not not even just the way that Kirby drew, but I think even the way that Kirby told stories even yeah now that i think about it somebody like simonson he he definitely was influenced by by kirby because he even did um a fourth world comic at dc in the early 2000s you know he had he had a run on orion for 
20 something yeah. issues that that was definitely a, a tribute to kirby you know yeah it's interesting though i i do kind of wonder and he wrote fantastic four yeah he did he did i was gonna say i kind of wonder though like <laughs> i i would love to to well i don't want to necessarily talk to t-mac or rob liefeld <laughs> But I'm curious to see, like, how if there is someone out there who could diagram the connection between guys like Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, or Wills Portacio or something like that to Jack Kirby, I would love to see that diagram. You know? Well, I've I've heard people talk about Liefeld's art in comparison to Kirby in the sense that both of them took liberties with proportions and anatomy at times. Some and... would say that one of them took far more liberty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people I... might call it reckless abandon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say what you will about Jack Kirby taking liberties with the human form. At least he knew how to draw feet. Yeah, yeah. Man, like, uh, of of those image guys, like, one of the guys that I can clearly say was um, influenced by Kirby is someone like Eric Larson. Like, you could yeah. definitely see Jack Kirby's influence on his work. Yeah. Yeah. I, it reminds me of this story. I remember we were looking at this Kickstarter, and, um, you know, it was it was for... I don't mind calling calling it crap because the the creator was uh was just he he was a bad artist and he was a bad person <laughs> so <laughs> this like, is on kickstarter this i think this was on kickstarter or some 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 sort of uh independent funding thing like indiegogo or something yeah indiegogo i think it was indiegogo and i forget what it was but i remember like someone drew this thing where uh it was it basically looked like the back of a hand, but it looked like there were a pair of testicles that were growing out of it. <laughs> like I think palms, I remember that. Yeah, the palms basically looked like testicles or something. And I was just like, that is hideous. And, you know, people, the people that uh, aligned themselves with this particular creator were trying their best to defend it, you know? And <laughs> this, this one, someone commented how, like, Hey, even Jack Kirby, you know, he, he took liberties with anatomy and I, you know what, if I was in a room with that dude and he had said that one, I, I would have smacked him like (laughs) with the the heel of my shoe, you know, (laughs) I would have been like, look, man, Jack Kirby gets to take liberties because he's Jack Kirby. This guy is not Jack Kirby by any stretch of the imagination. And if, like, you can't tell the difference, then you truly deserve to get kicked in the head. <laughs> yeah, and, and Jack Kirby never drew a sack of balls connected to a to a wrist. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Another element of uh, the impact, I think, that Fantastic Four leaves us with is the fact that it's pretty socially conscious that was one thing i i noticed when i was reading these comics and 
I say that with the full recognition that there are, uh, let's say, comic book people, people <laughs> <laughs> who, who like to go around and, and talk about how comics back in the days, back in the old days, weren't socially conscious or that comics to like they're they're constantly railing about how comics today are are uh, too socially conscious and or too political yeah but and that comics in the past weren't like that yeah you know and and you and i have, have talked about this before probably even on some older episodes where we were just laughing yeah. at those chumps because yeah. something like fantastic four you know the the original quintessential marvel comic it's chock full of social commentary, man. There's a lot of stuff here that yeah. that uh, I wouldn't say it's it's necessarily preachy, but there are times when it's pretty obvious that the creators behind the comic are encouraging, you know, love for your fellow man and, and stuff like that. Right? It's it's yeah. pretty straightforward stuff. Like there's yeah. issue uh, twenty one. Like that's that's one that that jumps out to me because issue 21 is the issue where they meet the hate monger and the hate monger is basically this dude who's dressed up in, in a kind of a Ku Klux Klan hood. Yeah. And all he, yeah. And his, his whole deal is that he wants to get, he has this hate ray that he, that he's going to beam across the planet and it's going to cause everybody to hate each other. And all the, in the ensuing, chaos and conflict he's gonna um you know take over the world basically and he he manages to to use it on a small scale so as you're reading the story you see what happens when when people give in to their worst prejudices and and uh you know they're 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 attacking people because of the way they look and, and stuff like that and and then at the end of the story, when the Fantastic Four finally get it together and and defeat the hate monger, they pull off the hood. It's Adolf Hitler. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they, they beat Hitler, and and then uh, the very last panel of the and, and it's actually a pretty ironic ending too because how how it ends is the the hate monger has a gun with his hate ray in it and. He's about to blast the Fantastic Four so that they're going to hate each other even harder. But Invisible Girl manages to sneak up on him and ruin his aim. So he accidentally shoots his own soldiers. And then his soldiers start hating him and they kill him. (laughs) (laughs) So there's just something deliciously ironic about about how the hate monger gets killed by his own weapon hates <laughs> and then <laughs> and then the the final panel of that issue it ends with the fantastic four flying off uh back to their home and then reed richard says until men truly love each other regardless of race creed or color the hate monger will still be undefeated let's never forget that clearly mm-hmm. There are some people who forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of people who forgot that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, unfortunately, it sounds like uh, it's it is now twenty twenty one, and the hate monger is still undefeated. Yeah. Sorry to report that. Yeah. 
he, he exists in our heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Uh, like my one little diet. Like I'm. I'm sure I've given several diatribes on the subject, but my one little diatribe is like, hey, people, stories don't happen in a vacuum. You know, like we draw things from our environment, from things that happen to us, the things that we see, the things that we experience. You know, yeah. so like when we tell stories, we're we're communicating our opinions on those stories, whether you like it or not, man. So yeah. like if you're going to like focus on those things and like make it a point to to let it ruin your appreciation or something, it's like, dude, like how do you leave your house? Yeah. How do you enjoy how do you, anything? Every, how do you every, enjoy anything? Yeah. Every piece yeah. of, uh, you know, every story, every piece of art, pretty much anything created by a human being has some kind yeah. of agenda behind it. Like, I, I can't yeah. really think of something that doesn't have an agenda. Like, the thing that I that always gets me is, like, I, I think about people who... Um, I've had this conversation with, like, non-comics people, you know? And I'll, I'll just be like, did you like Aladdin when you were a kid? And, you know, the Disney Aladdin? Yeah, okay. Well, there's an interpretation of that where it's essentially about... Uh, it's an anti-classist story. It's... There's an interpretation of it where the moral of it is you should be able to love who you want despite their social class. Mm -hmm. You know, money isn't everything. Did that ruin that for you? Like, <laughs> like you know, Beauty and the Beast could be one. It could the it, it could be a story. Again, there's an interpretation of that where the message, quote unquote, message of the story is, hey, uh, don't be so hung up on looks. Don't hate people based on how they look. Do what I do. Hate them based on what they tweet. <laughs> yeah, because that, that's that's the the most just and fair way of hating people. You hate people based on the content of their character. Yeah. And what is more revealing about their character than what they're willing to put on their social media accounts? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you want to say about the impact of Fantastic Four? Uh, well we have this one bullet point here about the shared universe and it's not something that I had thought of, uh, initially, but it's interesting that you did, uh, include it. Uh, like the, the one thought that I do have is, and I don't know if this is solely attributed to the fantastic four. Um, uh, and cause I feel like it's something that you can technically say was a Marvel, Marvel wide thing. But mm -hmm. um, I do feel that 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 the way that they developed their world building so that they could have something like a shared universe. Um, again, in, in our current day, the, the the clearest version of this that we see is in the Marvel movies, and it's pretty it's pretty clear that when they, when, you know, the Marvel cinematic universe went about developing this map for this massive Marvel universe 
cinematic universe. One, it, it hadn't been something that had been um, attempted before mm-hmm. by much of anything. Like, I, I'm, I'm sure there might be an example of crossovers here or there, but nothing to this degree, nothing to this uh, scale. And I, I think it's pretty fair to say that the idea for that, um, you know, a lot of it being attributed to someone like Kevin Feige, but that sort of thing was directly influenced by just the way that the Marvel universe was set up in its yeah. infancy. So, um, and, and even, you know, once, once infinity war ended and you had the culmination of that Marvel of the Marvel universe, uh, in that phase, like there was a period of time and, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm pretty sure that we still exist in that period of time, but, um, Hollywood as a whole uh, decided that they wanted to mimic that. So, you know, the first thing that you see yeah. is that you saw that the DC Universe uh, at Warner Brothers, they attempted to do their version of it poorly, but they attempted to do their version of it. And then, yeah. in addition to that, all these other properties decided that they wanted to flush out their shared universe. So, yeah. you know, you had the Ghostbusters shared universe, and then you had um i want to say like something like men in black and they were talking about all sorts of different things wasn't wasn't there a a king kong shared universe yeah there's a godzilla shared universe there was the dark shared universe which was all the all the universal movie monsters so you had like your werewolf or your wolfman your uh the mummy uh dracula oh yeah that was something that they were trying to plan, that they were hedging on it being something big, and it just ended up tanking. <laughs> um, yeah, but there, it, it feels like every major uh, movie studio decided that this was the way of the future. And, and the seed of it all was all here in, in Marvel Comics and in the way that they set up uh, their universe. You know, yeah, and when you look at uh, the even the early Fantastic Four, they they brought back Namor. You know, like that was the first indication that uh, there was something. Yeah, yeah, that there was a universe that that had the other characters that they owned. Uh, you know, they all belonged with each other. Yeah. And then uh, you know, after Namor, of course, you would get all the other characters that they had been creating throughout the sixties, you know, you get the Avengers, uh, you get Spider-Man, you get the X-Men, like everybody shows up when Reed Richards and Sue Storm get married. Like Nick Fury is there. Um, the characters from shield, uh, Captain America, you know, it's like just a who's who of the Marvel universe, Dr. Strange. Yeah. Yeah. And every everything kind of just hinged around, I, th- I would say, the Fantastic Four because at at the time that was that was the tentpole book. You know that Fantastic Four in the '60s was a way bigger deal in Marvel Comics than probably uh, you know when we were growing up in the '90s. You know, Fantastic Four was pretty low selling title by the time we were alive, yeah. but at the time that was kind of the center of everything that was going on in their books. You know, I don't think it's a mistake that, that in amazing Spider-Man number one, fantastic four guest star in that 
you know, it's, yeah. I'm sure that helped people, uh, it helped draw attention to this new character that they created. So it, yeah, it, it really feels like this concept of having a shared universe really made a big difference in how people approached superhero comics. Yeah. And you can say that in, at DC, they, they had something going on with, uh, you know, things like the Justice Society of America or the Justice League of America. But it, it just feels like those books were were team books where the, the characters only interacted with each other in in those books. So you, you wouldn't be reading, uh, let's say, uh, an issue of Batman and all of a sudden um, in the 60s, you wouldn't see an issue of Batman that, that suddenly had like... Uh, Flash and, and Martian Manhunter show up just because, you know? Yeah. The one the one thing, the one book that I would say was sort of a similar idea uh, in terms of a shared universe was World's Finest, but like, it always felt like it was just Batman and Superman, and it was more like, well, these yeah, are two that's most what it was. popular characters. Yeah, it, these are our two most popular characters, and we're just going to have them have a book that's just about them, right? But the Fantastic Four <laughs> really did feel like it was sprinkled throughout the the Marvel universe as a whole. Yeah, like I yeah, think- even something like uh, like how have, there was an issue where where uh, Matt Murdock is their lawyer, you know, and then yeah, all yeah, of a yeah. sudden Doctor Doom attacks, and then he has to turn into Daredevil and and help them, stuff yeah. like that was happening and it just felt felt organic like there's a reason why these characters are teaming up well number one they all live in new york city so it makes sense that they would cross paths whereas in the dc universe everybody had their own city but yeah and fantastic four it's like like to nowadays it, it feels like those would be milked to become like events or something you know but but yeah when you're reading these old issues it's just something that happens over the course of the story where, well, of course the Fantastic Four would meet Daredevil because they live in New York City, and why wouldn't they? <laughs> They're casual about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, in one of the first uh, earlier issues, like one of the things I remember was there's a team up with Ant-Man, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and and you're right when you mentioned, um, I hadn't forgotten how much of a big deal this was, but the marriage of Reed Richards and Sue Storm like, that was, like, an event comic that wasn't an event in the sense that there were, like, a lot of explosions or some world-ending threat, you know? But mm-hmm. it's, it's just a good old-fashioned marriage between um, essentially what's Marvel, what is Marvel royalty. And yeah. what better way to celebrate that than to have everyone in the Marvel universe be there to... to um, to partake of this momentous uh, event. Yeah, totally, totally. And the other thing about the marriage issue, um, I think that was the third or fourth annual, I forget. But the other thing about that issue is that even to this day, Reed and Sue are still married. And it's become such such an important um, aspect of not only their relationship, but an important aspect of their of the entire team dynamics is the fact that they're a married couple. And, you know, over the years, 
creators would give them uh children you know there's they've got franklin and valeria Valeria. now um but but just the fact that their marriage has been such a crucial element of the fantastic fours team dynamics and character development all these decades you know it's it's impressive to see and it's nice to see because they haven't made a deal with the devil to end their marriage (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah uh yet 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 yeah as of uh january 2021 uh that has not happened yet so yeah maybe uh maybe we'll have to revise this in the future if uh if they ever have to you know sacrifice their marriage to mephisto for some reason yeah maybe maybe there'll be a story where uncle where ben grimm's uh aunt petunia is dying and rita and sue have to sacrifice their marriage to mephisto in order to save her yeah um i can't say that i would buy that comic um (laughs) can't say that i'd be enthusiastic at the thought of that comic but uh like rob liefeld it's a thing that happened (laughs) (laughs) anything else you want to say about the impact uh no no i'm pretty satisfied i think we covered some good stuff there um i feel like we can move on to the next uh criteria which is this book's uh, the fantastic four's ability to withstand the test of time so uh like the first bullet point that you mentioned here is kirby's artwork is magnificent which i wholeheartedly agree with and uh you know We've been heaping our praise upon it over the course of this entire podcast because it's true uh, that his artwork was, it set the standard for so much of uh, comics moving forward. And I would even say, not even from a, like, you know, not even from from an educational perspective, if you're trying to educate yourself about comics, you can go back and look at these comics that, um, these fantastic four comics and the artwork is still just fun to look at just for the sake of looking at it you know yeah it totally holds up yeah it's just enjoyable uh and even emotive there's a lot of emotion like one of the things that we didn't cover uh, in in this uh over the course of this podcast is that um jack kirby when he draws like emotion on on the characters uh like it shows, you know, it, like yeah. thing, when the thing is heartbroken or in pain, like he he's a giant rock monster, but you still see like the pain in the way that his body moves. You can see, you know, and his, his eyes, cast shoulders, his eyes, and like just his frown. Like it's it's so well done in how it's communicated. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he doesn't have dead eyes staring back at you. I don't look at him and go. That those are the eyes of a serial killer. How can you not <laughs> feel anything? <laughs> yeah, the the artwork just holds up, and I, w- I would say uh, when I was reading these issues uh, in preparation for this episode, I, I did have some of the color reprints, but I also have a couple of the old essential volumes. So back in like the late '90s and early 
to mid 2000s marvel had a line called the essentials where they would reprint all these old comics like they would reprint like maybe 20 straight issues of, of old comics on this cheap newsprint kind of paper so so the book would be cheaper but it would also be in black and white and i actually really like those comics man i think they've discontinued that line so they the essentials might be out of print but i i really like how kirby's art looks in black and white i actually think the black and white is easier to look at than the some of the color reprints from today because um you know today with with uh the nice paper that comics trade paperbacks are printed on, like the glossy kind of paper, the colors just look kind of weird to me. Like it, it's different if you're looking at um, the original, like actual comic book, like the single, the original single issue, because that was printed on a type of paper that, that soaked up the colors. And it, you know, it looked, it looks okay on that. It looks fine on that. But when you uh, look at a digital version or like one of those Marvel masterworks or something, like the the because the the paper doesn't soak up the color and it's just like the it's it's just way too garish at some points i think like i mean not not every page is horrible or anything but i think over, there can be some pages that that do have that garish look to them and that that does kind of irk me cuz i i wish that they would uh maybe made a way for the colors to look more like how they did in the original comics Mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah for i guess for anyone listening if, if you're able to get your hands on the essential editions i would i would recommend those because his art looks really good in black and white and and uh some of the inkers on his work um like especially joe sinnott or sinnott i'm sorry i don't know how to pronounce his name but yeah that once that dude takes over on the inks it, it looks pretty dang nice and holds up to to this day yeah i'm like on comiXology right now and i was trying to see if they had those essentials on on digital they unfortunately don't but it would have been cool if they did yeah (laughs) Uh, you know because personally and this might just be a me thing i'm not a big fan of those essentials just because i i I feel like like i appreciate the fact that they pack so much in there but i i also feel like uh they're not the most well put together books <laughs> so uh i'm constantly afraid that the, that over i mean granted over time everything falls apart but everything dies everything you, dies especially me, this planet <laughs> i was going to say everything dies especially if you kill it <laughs> <laughs> um yeah but uh yeah, I mean they. Yeah, I, I, I think those essentials might be out of print too, so they might be hard to get your hands on. But uh, you mentioned it yourself. Yeah, uh, you just gotta check your local comic book store. That's your best option. They might have yeah. some in stock. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm more okay with the essentials because I think um, I I just try to be more gentle with my trade paperbacks. I know hardcovers are, are easier because they uh you know they're more durable, but I have a lot of paperbacks in my collection and yeah, typically I, I take I try to take as gentle care with them as I can, you know, I treat them like delicate flowers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, well, you know what? I, you know, I appreciate your, your, uh, delicacy and your effort and added attention. Yeah, man. I, I am a, I am a gardener who prunes the ever evolving collection of flowers in my possession and everything under my care gets the utmost attention. So yeah. Uh, I don't even know where I was going with that. Yeah, I uh, I was content to just sit here silently while I I listened to where this journey was going to take us. <laughs> Apparently nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so yeah, so one of the things that I have to that I'm gonna talk about here is that. Uh, we've mentioned this a couple of times, but Stan Lee's writing on this comic is, you know, it's, it's a little dated and it's something that, uh, you know, it's a comic that's at this point about 60 years old, uh, maybe a little under 60 years old. Uh, so there are things about it that when you read with your modern, uh, uh, you know, uh, modern aesthetics it, it it's not going to sound the way that people sound now certainly and yeah you know i i guess some people could make the argument that it's a little wordy or whatever but uh i think the thing about it that allows it that allows me to say that it withstands the test of time is again it's uh, you, you have it right here, but it's the thematic content. It's the the stories overall. Um, again, we mentioned that the, the current Marvel Comics universe is constantly mining these for stories uh, mm-hmm. over and over again. And it would not... These stories there is no clearer indicator of its ability to withstand the test of time than the fact that they are still constantly referencing that Galactus is out there ending worlds that every couple of years we have some version of the coming of Galactus story, you know, mm-hmm. like this, that is, that is the thing about these stories, at least for me, that shows that it has withstood the test of time. Like, I'm I'm pretty confident that years from now, when I'm, you know, substantially older, there's going to be so many more Galactus stories between now and, you know, <laughs> my old, signif- substantially older age, you know? Mm-hmm. And they're going to touch on elements, elements that were created originally by jack kirby and stan lee um you know maybe different writers will expand on them or uh interpret them differently but again these things wouldn't be these stories wouldn't be timeless like yeah they wouldn't be timeless if these modern writers weren't weren't able to go back to uh reinterpret them or retell them right yeah like like otherwise they 
they would truly be just coming up with newer things that we that have no connection to any of the Fantastic Four lore whatsoever. So, yeah, I, I would say that is that is the the thing about it that for me personally uh, proves that these are timeless comics. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think um, these comics hold up because they're they're comics that we can still appreciate beyond just the fact that they're old and classic. You know, like sometimes there's stuff from the past that is significant, and you read it because you need a history lesson, and you just want to understand the roots of something right like i don't know like detective comics number 27 the first appearance of batman like yeah that's something that that i read because i wanted to read the first appearance of batman but is that something that i would consider one of the most uh important dc comics or not important but because it's obviously important but is that something that i could see myself reading over and over because it's a great comic uh you know probably not it's it's not a bad comic or anything but there's just something about it where it's not necessarily a story that demands uh my constant revisitation whereas i think with the fantastic four run by kirby and lee there are things in this run that demand attention like there there are there's Yes, say what you will about Stan Lee's wordiness and his occasionally hokey dialogue, but I do think that um, his his scripting can be effective at times. Like there are there are points where he's able to tap into, I guess, a humanistic or even even poetic uh, approach, where he really is able to craft dialogue that at least carries the essence or the emotion of the moment uh, through the characters in a really effective manner. Like I I think about um, issue 51, like the issue right after the, the Galactus trilogy, right? The issue 51 is this man, this monster. And that's definitely one of my favorite issues of the entire run, maybe, maybe even my favorite issue. And and that's a story that explores the thing and how, again, like what we were saying earlier about how Ben Grimm hates being this freak. And one day he, he meets this, this villain who's, who takes advantage of him. And the guy, the villain basically takes the power of the thing. So he, he, he transforms himself into the thing but he has his own mind where while Ben Grimm reverts to looking like a normal person again. And then they, they both go to the rest of the fantastic four and Mr. Fantastic doesn't believe that the human Ben Grimm is really Ben Grimm. You know, he, he thinks that his friend is actually the thing even and doesn't realize that the guy has transplant that the bad guy has transplanted his mind into the thing's body um and and it becomes this this uh exploration of friendship 
the friendship between Mr. Fantastic and and the thing. And I, I don't want to spoil how it ends, but essentially it, it's it's a pretty uh I don't want to oversell it either, but but I'm just gonna say that it's a story that we might like if you didn't read any Fantastic Four stories from this era, you might be surprised that that a story that a comic from the '60s had this level of um, poetry to it. In a way, it's it's like surprisingly emotive, you know. And yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm I will say it is rough at points. Like it's it's not like a perfect comic or anything in terms of the dialogue, but. In terms of the emotional highs and the emotional content, that's that's what's real, man. That's that's the reason why we read comics, man, because they make you feel something, like any kind of good art or story. Yeah. Hear you, hear you. Hmm. Anything else uh, you want to say about how the series withstands the test of time, Albert? Um. No, like I, I think uh, I think we covered it, and I'm I'm pretty satisfied with uh, what we've said here. Like I I stand behind um, I stand behind what I said earlier, which which is just you know these are yeah I, like I, I would happen to agree with you that these are something that you can read beyond uh, a history lesson. Um, I think I may have less patience for this kind of stuff than you do to be quite honest mm-hmm. but uh but i i see its value i definitely see its value so here, here's another question I, I wanted to ask you albert if you were to pick any uh, highlights from this run or or uh recommend somebody check out a specific issue or story uh, what would you point out? Because, you know, this is like over a hundred issues of comics. And if somebody uh, is inspired by our discussion to seek it out, um, you know, it's a big commitment, but if they just wanted to check out a short, you know, like one issue or a, one story arc or something, like what, what would be the thing that you would point them to? Ooh. So... I'm gonna again. I'm gonna have to admit something to our our listeners, but I I didn't read it all the way through because so, it, it is a hundred. It's a lot of comics. It's a lot of comics. So I there are things that I haven't gotten to quite yet, but just from what I know and uh, in terms of what I would what I feel are must read comics within uh within the the, this 102 issues i would have to i'd have to put out the coming of galactus uh that story arc um like that that's a classic story it's it's the one that you know the fantastic four are known for um Mm -hmm. it's it's one of their biggest stories ever if not the biggest uh i suppose it's debatable Maybe there's someone out there who thinks that, um, you know, the death of Mr. Fantastic by Tom DeFalco, <laughs> Howard Mackey, or whoever wrote that story. Maybe what what about that time when uh, Johnny Storm married a Skrull? 
Yeah, yeah. Or uh, the time that uh, Invisible Woman became a domin- dominatrix. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was that too. Yeah. Don't read those. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my point being that, you know, it, like if you really want to get to the meat of it, I would say that that story uh, is is probably the one that you have to that you have to uh take part in um i will say that talking uh, talking with you over the course of this podcast uh you did sell me on the idea of the the hate monger story so i'm definitely gonna have to check that story out mm-hmm. yeah that um, one was uh, i think issue 21 and yeah. the Galactus story is issues 48, 49, and 50. Yeah. What about you, Drew? What? Oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something? I was going to say, I think one of the interesting things about the Galactus three-parter is that the very first few pages of part one don't actually deal with Galactus, but they actually end the previous issue story about the Inhumans which I thought was pretty interesting. And then part three of the Galactus story, it it ends like in the first few pages. And then like the second half of the issue is about Johnny Storm going to college. <laughs> so I always thought that was like, an, like you don't really see that kind of storytelling in today's comics, you know, like yeah, in today's world. To keep it tighter. Yeah. But the, the way that, that they ended up doing it was was pretty interesting. So it, it ends up being like maybe two issues worth of content, but it's just spread out over three issues, which I think is fascinating. And and uh, yeah, it, it's still a great story regardless of that. Um, you know, I, that's definitely my recommendation also. Uh, yeah. Definitely recommend issue 51, This Man, This Monster, which I, I mentioned a few minutes ago. I also really liked... Uh, I think it was, I can't remember if it was annual number two or annual number three, but one of those has uh, the origin of, of Dr. Doom. I, I enjoyed that. Dr. Doom's one of my, he's probably my favorite supervillain in comics. Mm. And even even though we've seen his origin, um, we've seen people do a modern retelling of the origin. Like I still, I still enjoyed reading the Stan Lee and Jack Kirby version. If you want to check out a modern version of Dr. Doom's origin, I'd recommend looking up books of doom by Ed Brubaker and Pablo Raimondi. That one was, that's a, that's a cool story. Um, yeah, actually speaking of, uh, other recommendations, Albert, I was also going to ask you what would be, uh, like if for somebody that, enjoys or appreciates this run of fantastic four what are some other comics that you would recommend to that person that are kind of maybe in the vein or in the spirit of this run Ooh. i mean the the stuff that i'm inclined to initially uh, that i'm inclined to mention are just other runs of the fantastic four honestly so yeah you know, we talked about this in another podcast, but, you know, Mark Wade and Michael Ringo's run on Fantastic Four is another good run. Yeah. Um, I would say, what 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 was that? Ultimate Doom, not Doomsday, what? Ultimate the Ultimate Night? Galactus Trilogy? Yeah, the Ultimate Galactus Trilogy was going to be 
the other one that I would mention, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of the modern retelling of that of of the Galactus story that we mentioned earlier. But you know, I thought that was pretty pretty well done. Um, I mean, yeah, one of the things that oh, we forgot to mention earlier, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, when we were listing. Um, you know, other properties that they created that that were coming out of this run, uh, out of, you know, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee's Fantastic Four, I'd have to mention Silver Surfer. Like, that's a big one, man. Mm-hmm. Like, so much mm-hmm. so that he ended up getting his own series and, you know, uh, yeah, like, I'm not going to say that, uh, you know, we ended up, with like Thanos in the movies because of him or anything like that. But, you know, Thanos and Silver Surfer, they're a big part of each other's lives. So, you know, again, like that idea, if we drew a diagram, if we went back far enough, like there's a way to make those connections. Granted, you can do that with almost anything. It's, uh, it's essentially a game of six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Or <laughs> Kevin Bacon. Still, um, I mean, it's more relevant here than, you know, Anything with Kevin Bacon? Yeah, than anything with Kevin Bacon. Anything quite that absurd. Uh, yeah, I, I really have to think about other comics that are spiritual uh, successors to, to this Fantastic Four run. Um, I haven't read it yet, but you also mentioned uh, Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think is just... From what you told me, it's just a reimagination of a lot of uh, classic Fantastic Four villains and ideas. Yeah, he he definitely. It's a love letter to the Fantastic, the classic Fantastic Four, and he also puts in a lot of his own uh, fresh ideas as well. So it's a, it's a tribute both ways. It's a tribute to the the storied history of the series, but it's also a tribute to the fact that Jack Kirby was an ideas man, you know, and and Hickman brought a lot of ideas. Yeah, I, I I can see that. I although I didn't read the entirety of the series, I did read the first trade pa- paperback of it or the first hardcover of it. And like right at the beginning of the series, one of the images that jumps out at me, like that really sticks with me to this day, is uh, Reed Richards. Um, he's in his lab, and it's just him in front of a chalkboard. And the chalk on the chalkboard it says "solve everything," mm-hmm. you know, and he just has it circled in chalk, and that's you know that that image just inspires a sense of awe, you know, it, it inspires this feeling that Mister Fantastic is a guy who 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 is that talented and that ambitious where he believes that he can solve everything. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's huge, you know? That is mm-hmm. huge. And, um, yeah, I, I appreciated that. Yeah, I'd have to say Hickman's run on Fantastic Four and FF, that's my favorite Fantastic Four run, my, my personal favorite. Um, we may have to discuss it more at some point in the future after you you get a chance to read it, but I highly recommend to anyone listening to seek out 
Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four, if you haven't read it. Um, yeah, I have a couple of recommendations myself too. Like I would, I would say, um, for anyone who appreciates Jack Kirby's stuff, you definitely owe it to yourself to look up his fourth world comics when he, so like later on in his career, um, he, he left Marvel for a period of time and went to DC comics and started, he had his own line of comics at DC uh, called the fourth world. So it was Jimmy Olsen, uh, the, the new God, Mr. Miracle and the forever people. And there's an, there's an omnibus collecting all of it. Uh, that's probably the, the easiest way to get it all. Um, and I'm sure there are. Yeah. And there's an absolute edition. Uh, probably going to make one or two volumes or what, two or three volumes of it, I'm guessing. And there's, there's trades that collect the uh, individual series as well. But if you can read all of it, yeah, I would highly recommend it. Because one of the things with Kirby, and I would also say uh, this applies to his Fantastic Four is, and I don't know if we mentioned it, I don't think we mentioned it um, so far, but I feel like one of the reasons why he's so great at conveying emotion is because the stuff he draws, like when he draws um, his characters, there's, it's almost like, uh, an opera like he has an operatic sense of storytelling because everything that happens is always pretty um pretty dramatic and and the way that he sells it is like maybe it's not necessarily the most subtle but it feels like it, it always works with the story that he's telling because he's telling these grand stories you know and even if it's uh, a simple human emotion it plays out on this grand scale that most people would never regularly experience or even conceive of. And and that's why it really works. So even though the fourth world is this cosmic kind of story that, that, uh, you know, is very far from kind of the daily normalcy that the fantastic four get to experience in their normal lives. It, it still taps into that maniacal energy that is just inherent in his art style and in his storytelling style, but it, it doesn't skimp on the, on the emotional content either. Like it's probably, it's weird to say this, but the fourth world might be Kirby's most personal work, even though it's about like gods from outer space battling each other. <laughs> but when you read it, it just, cause he wrote Andrew that himself. So it, it just kind of feels like, he put a lot of himself into the story, you know, like there's a lot of, like, I think if you read his, those comics, you, you can get a sense of like, almost like what he valued as a person. Like what, what did he care about? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I definitely recommend that. Um, another thing that I was thinking of was if, if anyone is interested in, in a modern, uh, reimagining or modern uh, retelling of the Fantastic Four origin story, you should check out this comic by Joe Casey and Chris Weston called Fantastic Four First Family. That's another good one. Mm. Um, and, and speaking of Joe Casey, another one to check out by him is Godland with art by Tom Scholey. We mentioned him earlier, um, but he, he, he draws in this 
Kirby influenced style and, and Godland is another cosmic kind of story, but there's, there's a lot of stuff in it that totally reminds me of fantastic Four. like, there's even like this giant dog like thing kind of reminds me of Lockjaw. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, yeah. Th- those are, those are some of my recommendations. Well, listening to you talk about it, it I do want to make one more. Um, mm-hmm. And this isn't something that I read, but I'm super interested in it. Which yeah. Is, uh, Fantastic Four Grand Design. It's also by Tom Shield. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about and, that. Yeah, and it's something where, again, uh, we mentioned him earlier in the podcast, but he's a dude who who has a lot of reverence for Jack Kirby, That so much so that he, uh, you know, his art style is very much reminiscent of uh, Jack Kirby's. And uh, Fantastic Four Grand Design is Marvel Comics giving him the opportunity to uh, tell a condensed version of the Fantastic Four story, uh, you know, in his art style. And, heck, in his writing style. So Yeah, um, dude, I want, yeah, I want to check that out, too. I haven't read it. Yeah. And like his artwork is just beautiful, and I have full confidence that it it's something that's gonna be pretty fun to read. Yeah, that's definitely on my radar. Yeah. Anything else you want to say before we sign off, Albert? Uh, no. I'm I'm you know I'm glad that we made it to the end of this journey, and uh, you know thanks for sticking out sticking it out with us guys uh you know we're gonna we're gonna keep working we're gonna try to do more we're mm-hmm. gonna try to produce some more lists because we just enjoy talking about comics that much man yeah totally and uh yeah i'll say i'll say uh if things go according to plan like what we what you can expect from us in in the coming episodes Next next time coming up, we're gonna try and and do a book club discussion type of episode about the Vision by Tom King and Gabriel Walta, because WandaVision is coming out uh, in a couple weeks, so we thought it'd be timely to do something uh, in relation to that. But yeah, but after, what's that? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was- and I was gonna say after after that, we're gonna do a couple episodes or at least one episode, if not two, uh, as an addendum to our Marvel Top 25 list because we probably want to talk about some of the stories that did not make the list and discuss uh, why they didn't make the list and maybe even uh, talk about stories that, you know, we we understand that there are a lot of stories or a lot of comics uh, that probably a lot of people would have expected to be on a list like this, but we're, we're not on our list. And we might take some time to explain why the Dark Phoenix Saga isn't on our list. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> I, think, I think I still have that essay that Albert wrote talking about uh, God loves, man kills, and why that's it's- not a classic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> where do so, i begin yeah so stay stay tuned for for that we we definitely have a couple addendums for the marvel top 25 and yeah and if if anyone 
listening out there has any comments or questions or even wants to, uh, you know, challenge us as to, hey, why isn't the Dark Phoenix Saga number one or, you know, whatever, you know, feel free to hit us up on Instagram or Twitter or email us at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. You know, we, we welcome any kind of civilized discourse. If you just want to shout at us and tell us that we're idiots, you know, we'll listen to that too. <laughs> uh, you're being pretty generous about that. <laughs> I meant that in the most literal sense. I mean, maybe I should have said we will hear that. <laughs> yeah. I will acknowledge a sound. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be like a cold part in the wind. Yeah, so this is Between the Gutters, signing off. Thank you for listening. Peace out.